This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Hey there, welcome back to the show. The Academy Award for Best Song was becoming one of the most sought-after honors in Hollywood, giving the winning songwriters a bit of notoriety in town and the promise of more work down the line. They were often rewarded financially with royalties from the records they made, though that wasn't always the case. It was an honor to be a part of an Academy Award song, but starting in 1938, that honor was not as exclusive as it used to be. For the first time since it was introduced in 1934, the rules for nominating the songs for an Academy Award made a big change to fall in line with the rules for the other two music awards, Best Score and Best Original Score. Instead of limiting the Best Song nominees to five, or more if there were ties, the Academy allowed each studio or production company to submit only one song from the movies they released in 1938, and that song would be guaranteed a nomination. The Academy stipulated that those who work in each studio's music department would nominate their pick for the best song from that studio, and the studio's submission to the Academy would be the song that received the most votes. You can imagine the bribery, the begging, and the infighting that occurred in the nearly one dozen studios in California just to get the right song on the Academy ballot. The rule change might have come about from smaller studios feeling that their song wouldn't stand a chance for a nomination, over songs by more popular songwriters from the more popular films coming from bigger studios. And you'll remember that last episode I said that Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs didn't get a nomination. Probably because, again, it was a smaller unknown quantity from Walt Disney, which was not a very popular studio at the time. Had this rule been submitted in 1937, it would have been a nominee. It might have won. The result of the rule change for 1938 was a slate of 10 nominated songs, featuring some tunes whose odds for a nomination might have been extremely low without this rule change. We're going to examine all 10 of those songs on this episode. The one other revision to the Academy rulebook greatly affected not only the nomination list, but the voting for the Best Song Award. Since the first Academy Awards, Hollywood's background actors, also known as extras, had been allowed to vote for all award categories as long as they were a part of the Screen Actors Guild. But the controversy surrounding the selection of Sweet Leilani as the best song of 1937 had many in the Academy thinking that it was the hundreds of extras alone who were responsible for picking Bing Crosby's mega-hit over the four other nominees, including They Can't Take That Away From Me from the Gershwins. That spurned the decision to block extras from voting for the music awards beginning in 1938 and there were more revisions to the rules for the music categories. Specific instructions in the rulebook for 1938 stated that only those who, quote, feel qualified to do so, end quote, should vote for the music awards, adding that a decision to pick a particular song or score should not be solely based on, quote, musical technicalities, but to measure the effectiveness with which the musical score is used to enhance the production, end quote. 
This directive from the Academy immediately affected which songs the studios put up for a nomination. Another big rule change was allowing songwriters to be nominated for more than one song each year. And in this first year of the eased up rule, two songwriters were able to benefit from it. So let's go in alphabetical order and start with the song Always and Always from the film Mannequin. But before we do, I want to remind you that major plot points from all these films will be mentioned, so you have been warned. Fans of the Best Song Oscar category probably knew there was a song from a film called Mannequin that featured an Oscar-nominated song, but you probably didn't know that there are two films called Mannequin, released almost 50 years apart, that each had a song nominated for an Oscar. We'll get to the second Mannequin film about 50 episodes from now, but let's get started learning more about the 1938 movie Mannequin. The older film features the only on-screen pairing of Spencer Tracy and Joan Crawford, who were two of MGM's biggest stars of the 1930s. Crawford had been a big name in the tabloids for nearly a decade, thanks to two divorces. But she had been one of the most reliable stars for MGM through the late 1920s and mid-1930s, until her film started to lose money beginning in 1937 with The Bride Wore Red. The paper started to label her as box office poison in the same trade ad that gave the same title to Fred Astaire that year. Crawford's performance in Mannequin was a mild resurgence since it made money, but it was only a slight peak in her career at that point. As for Spencer Tracy, he was about to become one of the most celebrated actors in Hollywood. Two months after Mannequin was released nationwide, he would win his first Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in Captain's Courageous. And not long after Mannequin rap production, Tracy would start filming Boys Town as Father Flanagan, a role that would win him another Oscar in the next year. So Tracy's star was about to burn bright as he began his 17-year career at MGM. Crawford plays Jesse, a woman longing to leave her poverty-stricken family behind for a more upscale life. She thinks she finds it in Eddie, the man she has been dating for a brief period of time. On their wedding day, they go to a Chinese restaurant to celebrate, and that is where Tracy's character, a shipping tycoon named John Hennessy, meets them. He is attracted to Jesse and asked to dance with her. The song that plays while they dance is Always and Always, which Jesse says is the song that played when she and Eddie fell in love. As John and Jesse dance to it, Jesse sings the lyrics, which tell of an unending romance. And so they were married. From here, it looks like it might be love. Might be. They've even got a song that goes with it. Under 
life is strange and ever-changing doesn't make reason or rhyme but through all the centuries time sentiment of the song does not last very long, as Eddie and Jesse divorce later in the film. The melody plays when John and Jesse dance again as they discuss the possibility of marriage. Jesse does not sing the song this time, which is apt because she is not truly in love with John. Edward Ward wrote the music for Always and Always in Mannequin, as well as the underscore for the film. He had two men working as lyricists on the song, Chet Forrest and Bob Wright. Forrest and Wright had been a songwriting pair since they were in high school, and they made their Hollywood debut in 1935. In addition to being business partners, they were romantically involved as well. Back in the 1930s, gay men in Hollywood were not as prevalent as they are now, especially since sympathetic portrayals of gay men and women on screen was forbidden by the Motion Picture Production Code. Any homosexuals working in Hollywood were likely forced to hide any relationship they had and this surely included Chet Forrest and Bob Wright. Even so, they worked together exclusively on every project they did from their humble beginnings to their final works in the 1980s, including the 1953 musical Kismet. With Mannequin, their contract with MGM required them to supply lyrics for a melody that Ward had written for the dance between Spencer Tracy and Joan Crawford. The result was an Oscar nomination for the three men. Our second Oscar-nominated song is from the eighth film from Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers called Carefree. The song is called Change Partners and Dance With Me, written by Irving Berlin. Just about everything in the film is different from previous Fred and Ginger stories. First off, Astaire does not play a dancer or entertainer of any kind in the film. Instead, he's a psychoanalyst named Tony who is charged with finding out why Rogers' Amanda does not want to get married. Another change in the film was the low number of songs and dance performances for the star duo. Irving Berlin wrote just three songs for the film and additional music for one dream dance sequence. As he mentions in his autobiography, Fred Astaire knew that, quote, the splitting up of the team was imminent and necessary, end quote. So there was only to be one more Fred and Ginger film in RKO's lineup after Carefree, and the team pulled out all the stops. Once again, Mark Sandrich is the director, and he handles the proceedings quite well, even if the way that Tony and Amanda finally get married in the end is somewhat convoluted. Just before that ending, Tony had hypnotized Amanda to convince her that she does not love him, and that she should marry his friend Steve. During this hypnosis, Tony makes Amanda believe that Tony is a terrible human being, and then Tony in the end wants to at least get that idea out of her head. But because she has been court-ordered to not talk to Amanda, he sings to her instead. And that song is Change Partners and Dance With Me. 
The song has a very simple construction, pretty much planning how Steve will be called away for a telephone call while they dance together. What's interesting is that immediately after the song finishes, that's exactly what happens. Must you die Every die With the same Fortunate man You have danced With him since the music began Won't you change Partners And dance with me Must you die Right so close With your lips Touching his face Can't you see I'm longing to be in his place Won't you change Partners And dance with me Ask him to sit this one out And while you're alone I'll tell the waiter to tell him he's wanted on the telephone. You've been locked in his arms ever since heaven knows when. Oh, won't you change partners and then you may never want to change partners again. Do you mind if we went outside for some fresh air? It's awfully stuffy in here. Not at all, sweetheart. Unlike his previous two Oscar-nominated song performances, Brett Astaire gets to dance to the melody of Change Partners. As if under hypnosis, Amanda moves around the dance floor while Tony appears to make her move with the power of suggestion. It's an interesting piece of choreography, and one of the most inventive ones designed by longtime choreographer Hermes Pan. Even if the team behind Carefree knew that the Fred and Ginger show was coming to an end, it probably didn't settle the fact that moviegoers were signaling the end as well. Carefree didn't make a profit for RKO, and a trade magazine put Fred Astaire on the list of actors who were box office poison. Though Astaire took offense to his inclusion on such a list, he didn't need to be concerned, as many of the people on that list, including Astaire, still had a lot of big hits left in them. Change Partners was the final song featuring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers to be nominated for an Oscar. The two made the biographical film The Story of Vernon and Irene Castle in 1939, but that film featured no original songs, hence the lack of any music nominations at the future Academy Awards. It was their final film together until they reunited for the Barclays of Broadway in 1949. The next Oscar-nominated song on our list is The Cowboy and the Lady from the film of the same name. This is our first Oscar-nominated song to share a title with the film, and it was written by Lionel Newman and Arthur Quinzer. Lionel Newman was the brother of Alfred Newman, who was the head of the music department at Samuel Goldwyn Productions. Alfred was the patriarch of film music in Hollywood at the time, taking the art to a new level with his technique of writing the music often to fit the action on screen instead of writing to only lift the mood. Lionel and Alfred would begin a family dynasty that continues through the 21st century, and their influence in Hollywood was quite significant. The Cowboy and the Lady was essentially one of the minor composing assignments for Alfred Newman, 
who would be busier working on the musical Alexander's Ragtime Band at the time for 20th Century Fox. That's the studio where Alfred Newman would become most famous, serving as the head of the studio's music department for 20 years beginning in 1940. His iconic fanfare for the 20th Century Fox logo was a request by Daryl Zanuck to accompany the logo at the start of each film, and so revered was Alfred Newman that Zanuck knew that Newman was the only person to write the best music, even if he wasn't yet part of the Fox family. But I shouldn't be talking about Alfred Newman here. Lionel Newman is the composer of the music for the song The Cowboy and the Lady, and though his career was overshadowed quite often by his older brother Alfred, Lionel thrived thanks to the familial connection. It was Alfred, after all, who asked Lionel to put in a song for this seemingly small romantic drama about a cowboy who falls in love with a socialite disguising herself as a maid in order to win his love. It turned into Lionel's first Oscar nomination, who celebrated with his brother, whose score for The Cowboy and the Lady was nominated for original score. As for lyricist Arthur Quinzer, not much is known about him. His career in Hollywood spanned barely a decade, from 1937 to 1947. A glance through newspapers of the 1930s bring up Quinzer as the subject of a quickie divorce from his wife Helen Worrell while he was an orchestra conductor and saxophone player in 1932. He eloped with Marcoretta Hellman in March 1938. Career-wise, he must have wanted to keep a low profile as he worked, especially when working with the famous Newman brothers. In The Cowboy and the Lady, it's Lyle Newman's contribution to the song that takes prominence. You'll hear the song's melody played in a restaurant about 19 minutes into the film, when the cowboy, stretched, played stoically and fairly charmingly by Gary Cooper, gets to know the socialite in disguise, Mary, played by Merle Oberon. Because it's a dialogue scene, perhaps the plan all along was to play only the melody, but when Mary takes Stretch back to her home with her actual maids and their dates, we hear a bit of Arthur Quinzer's lyrics, which stop suddenly when the cowboys see the mansion where Mary lives. Listen, you couldn't get very familiar and uh, tell me your name? Sure, Stretch. Huh? You know, <laughs> like this. I see. Well, my name's Mary Smith. Nice name, Mary Smith. You like it? Sure, I like it fine. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. Now, what's your name? I just told you, Stretch. Oh, Stretch. Yeah, what did I say? Oh, that's a marvelous name. I love it. Stretch. Hiya, Stretch. Hiya, Mary. Buzz, will you play a ukulele for me sometime? Sure will. Sometime tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone watching the film would not notice this moment as the song's only performance in the film, since the words cowboy and lady are never sung. 
It really does feel like a throwaway song, like one of the many previously composed songs that appear throughout the film, such as Big Rock Candy Mountain and Red River Valley. It doesn't even get a reprise in the final scene, when Stretch and Mary reconcile and live happily ever after. This new rule by the Academy allowing each studio to nominate one song benefited songs like The Cowboy and the Lady the most. It's likely that it would have never stood a chance at a nomination given its nearly non-existent presence in the film. This is the first Oscar-nominated song in the brief history of the category that does not get a full performance in the film. But a record was made and sold to the public in fall 1938 to coincide with the film's November premiere. This is Ray Whiteley and his six-bar cowboy singing the full version of The Cowboy and the Lady. Cowboy and the lady met there on the prairie that was painted by the western sun above. An old trail, cool and shady, led them to the prairie where the cowboy and the lady fell in love. You fight where the buffalo no longer roam. You fight where the Navajo once lived, they built their home. And now they a cradle somewhere on the prairie where the cowboy and the lady fell in Newman and Quinzer did write another song from the film called Eruti Tutti, performed by Fuzzy Knight. Yes, the Fuzzy Knight that sang the song A Melody from the Sky in 1937's Trail of the Lonesome Pine. This was just another cowboy sidekick role for Fuzzy, and he does get most of the laughs, stealing some scenes from Gary Cooper and Walter Brennan, 
who had just won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1936 and was about to get number two for 1938's Kentucky. I've talked a lot about a song a lot that is really only heard for less than a minute, but our next song on the list gets its full two and a half minutes in the movie. It's called Dust from the movie Under Western Stars. The movie is the first Western film to feature an Oscar-nominated song, and at 54 minutes, it will be one of the shortest Oscar-nominated films in history. Roy Rogers, the celebrated entertainer, takes the lead role for the first time here, playing a cowboy named Roy Rogers, though the character in the film is a fictionalized version. The film is mostly set in an unnamed town in an unnamed state that is going through a severe drought and a lack of water for ranchers and farmers. Rogers becomes the de facto spokesperson for the farmers and is pushed into running for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives to push for federal legislation to get free water to those who need it for farming. Because the film is just 54 minutes long, the process of electing Roy to Congress is completely skipped over, and we see him go from a mild-mannered challenger to a squeak-clean congressman looking to convince a colleague to sponsor a bill for a free federal water. In order to attract this congressman's attention, Roy throws a party at a D.C. country club and shows a film filled with images of dust storms ravaging towns and forcing farmers to give up their land. As these images play, Roy sings the song Dust, which further highlights the plight that he and his fellow farmers face. This is definitely not a love song. It's best described as a message song, which will become a genre within the best song category through the years. Roy Rogers put a tone of doom and gloom into the song as the chorus begs for God to send rain and sunshine to the beaten prairie. Dust, dust, dust in the skies, dust on the trail, dust in my eyes, dust, dust, can't see the sun, can't find my way, the dust has won. The cattle and the sheep better down to sleep Seem to realize their fate The vultures in the sky know the time is nigh Will they fly away or wait? Oh Lord, Must it be? Can this be eternity? It was a home where the buffalo roamed, where the deer and the antelope played. Here was a place where the cattle would graze, the corn and alfalfa once swayed. Where are the ranchers, the cow-punching crowd? What has become of the range? Out of the blue came a threatening cloud Causing this awful change
best, best must it be? Can this be eternity, O Lord, have mercy on for me? The song and film images of dust-covered homes seem to work as the bill nearly makes its way to Capitol Hill before it's discovered that the images of dust storms were not from the region in question. In the end, the bill gets written, though the film ends before we actually see it voted into law. The film's opening credits do not list dust among the songs to be featured in the film, which was usually the common practice, even though dust is undoubtedly the highlight performance of the film. It was written by Johnny Marvin, who also does not get screen credit for his work. Well, I suppose that wasn't really a big deal for Marvin after he learned of his Oscar nomination, because obviously it worked. The other six songs that Roy Driver sings in the film were written by the two songwriting duos of Jack Lawrence and Peter Tenturin, and Eddie Cherkos and Charles Rossoff. Of the four men, Jack Lawrence was the only one with the brightest future in Hollywood, though Cherkosi would write more songs than all of the three combined. Lawrence, Tenturin, and Cherkosi were all under 30 years old, all given their first Hollywood assignments with this Roy Rogers feature. As for Johnny Marvin, he was lucky enough to hitch his wagon to Gene Autry in 1937, writing songs for Springtime in the Roskies. Autry was the most popular singing cowboy until Roy Rogers won favor with audiences in Underwestern Stars and started a decades-long competition between Rogers and Autry for the title of Best Singing Cowboy. Autry was supposed to be the star of Under Western Stars, but he refused to do it, and Rogers stepped in. Many of the songs were already written for the film when Autry left, including Dust, and one wonders if Marvin's exclusion from the credits was connected to Audrey's departure from the film. But in the end, there must not have been any animosity toward Marvin since Republic Pictures submitted his song for the Oscars instead of any of the six others, which really had nothing to do with the plot other than give Roy Rogers the actor and Roy Rogers the character something to do in every other scene. Though Autry didn't get to sing Dust, he would sing dozens of Johnny and Marvin songs until 1942 when Autry enlisted to serve in World War II. Harry Warren returns to the Oscar competition for the fifth nominated song of 1938, Jeepers Creepers, from the film Going Places. This was Warren's third nomination, and his lyric writer, Johnny Mercer, was earning his first. Mercer's star was just about to rise in 1938, and he is on his way to becoming a very familiar name with the Academy Awards as we progress through this podcast. In 1938, Mercer was likely mourning the exclusion of his hit Hooray for Hollywood from the Best Song nominees of 1937. And he was very literally mourning around the time he was asked to collaborate with Harry Warren. His songwriting partner, Richard Whiting, died of a heart attack in February 1938 while working on the film Cowboy from Brooklyn. Whiting left a legacy of more than three dozen songs that remain popular in the 21st century. Mercer's upbringing was very different from the ones many of his contemporaries experienced. Many of his peers grew up in New York City or moved there after immigrating from Europe. Mercer grew up in Savannah, Georgia, raised mostly by the black servants in his house and those who lived near him, and the music Mercer appreciated as he matured was the sweet and stately music of the South. 
Warren and Mercer were under contract with Warner Brothers, so the two were matched to finish the song score for Cowboy in Brooklyn after Whiting's death, and then write three songs for Going Places. After appearing as major entertainment attractions in just a few films in the mid-1930s, Louis Armstrong would finally find the role and the song that would make him not only the most popular black singer in the country, but one of the most sought-after singers of any skin color that year. Known mostly for his trumpet playing, Armstrong was able to use his signature instrument in his role as Gabriel, the horse trainer, in Going Places. So inspiration for lyricists come in weird places. For Mercer, he found the title for this song in Henry Fonda. In one of Fonda's previous films, he said Jeepers Creepers often, and it stuck with Mercer as a way to fit into Warren's opening melody. It's not known which of those films featured Henry Fonda saying Jeepers Creepers, and trying to find that phrase would mean going through more than a dozen films, so we'll take Mercer's word for it that Henry Fonda is the inspiration behind the title of the song. With Mercer getting the idea to call the song Jeepers Creepers, that meant a major character in the plot had to be renamed. The film revolves around a wild and hard-to-train horse that will be ridden in the annual steeplechase race by Dick Powell. That horse is now called Jeepers Creepers, and Gabriel says the song in his name is the only way the horse will calm down. Gabriel proves it by pulling out a trumpet and playing the melody after Gabriel runs out of his stall. Naming Louis Armstrong's trumpet-playing horse trainer Gabriel is a bit on the nose, and I wonder if many people equated this with the angel Gabriel and his propensity for using a trumpet. So back to the story, we get Louis Armstrong's performance of the song to calm down the horse, and even if you don't know the song, the melody for the chorus will become catchy very quickly. What the weatherman says when the weatherman says it's raining. You'll never hear me complaining. I'm certain the sun will shine. I don't care how the weatherman points when the weatherman points to gloomy. It's got to be sunny to me when your eyes look into mine. Oh, jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers, Creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Oh gosh, I'll get up. I'd get so lit up. Gosh, I'll get up. I'd get that size. Oh golly gee. When you turn the heaters on, what is me? Got to put my cheaters on. Cheapers. Creepers, where'd you get those peepers? All oh, those weepers have hypnotized. Yeah. Where'd you get those eyes, Gate? Where'd you get those eyes, Satch? Where'd you get those eyes? Papa, the eyes. The song gets an instrumental performance at the start of the big race, as Jeepers Creepers is going haywire at the starting line. Louis Armstrong leads a band of musicians on a truck to play the song Jeepers Creepers to get the horse to focus and run the race. 
what happens is Jeepers Creepers follows the truck. Even when the truck goes off course, causing Dick Powell and the horse to go through clotheslines, onto a table, and through a ditch before throwing Powell to the ground. Hey boys! Though still dazed from the fall, Powell manages to finish the race by singing an a cappella version of the song. Powell is a great singer, but notice that he's so out of it that he can't hit the notes properly. His singing does the job until the truck can rejoin them with the melody. Jeepers creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Gosh, all get up, how'd you get so lit up? Gosh, all get up, how'd you get the eyes? Golly gee, can you turn those peepers off? I don't care if he wins or not, he's still the bravest man I ever saw. Jeepers creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Gosh, all get up. Come on, Jeepers. Come on, Jeepers. Jeepers. Where'd you get those? The song Jeepers Creepers was voted by the music department at Warner Brothers as its submission for the Academy Award nomination leaving out another popular song by Warren and Mercer called You Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby from the movie Hard to Get. And in the same fashion as Jeepers Creepers, Mercer got his inspiration from an unlikely place. When his wife Ginger said it after looking at a baby picture of Mercer that, quote, you must have been a beautiful baby, end quote. That was enough to get the lyrics flowing out of Mercer, with Warren quickly supplying the melody to create another classic love song. must have been a beautiful baby You must have been a wonderful child When you were only starting to go to kindergarten I bet you drove the little boys wild And when it came to winning blue ribbons You must have shown the other kids how can see the judge's eyes as he handed you the prize. I bet you made the cutest bow. Oh, you must have been a beautiful baby. Cause baby, look at you now. 
your mother realize the stork delivered quite a prize the day he left you on the family tree. I'm never taking it off with him. Does your dad appreciate that you are merely super great? The miracle of any century. He hasn't mentioned it. If they don't, just send them both to me. You must have been a beautiful baby. You must have been a wonderful child. When you were only starting to go to kindergarten, I bet you drove the little boys wild. And when it came to winning blue ribbons, you must have shown the other kids how. I can see the judge's eyes as he handed you the prize. I bet you made the cutest bow. You must have been a beautiful baby. Cause baby, look at you now. Hard to get was a flop and Warner Brothers probably felt that a song from the more successful Going Places would have a better chance at winning the Academy Award plaque that year. Both of the songs became an instant part of the American songbook and have been featured in movies and TV shows over the years, as well as albums by artists such as Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett. It was obvious that Harry Warren and Johnny Mercer were a match made in songwriting heaven with these two songs, but the collaboration didn't last. Warren won it out of his contract at Warner Brothers and was snatched up by 20th Century Fox. Mercer decided to stay put at Warner Brothers, though, for a few more years. We have another title song for our six-nominated tune, and it's Merrily We Live from the comedy film of the same name. Many of the reviews of the time blasted the film for being almost identical to the more popular and Oscar-nominated movie My Man Godfrey from 1936. I've seen My Man Godfrey, and there isn't much of a similarity other than the leading man in each movie is hired to work for a rich family. Merrily We Live can be defined as a screwball comedy with some physical gags and witty one-liners filling the 95-minute runtime. One of the stars of the film is Billy Burke, who received an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actress, playing the matriarch of the family whose hobby is taking in tramps and hiring them as chauffeurs. A few months before she earned her Oscar nomination, she was hired for her most iconic role as Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. The title song for Merrily We Live isn't the first title song to be nominated for an Oscar since that distinction goes to the barely performed The Cowboy and the Lady by virtue of being first alphabetically. But Merrily We Live does make a bit of history on its own as the first Oscar nominated song to play over the opening credits. The toe-tapping melody and somewhat catchy lyrics play as we see the names of the cast and crew of the film, while the main cast is shown walking arm-in-arm arm down the driveway of the mansion where most of the story takes place. Life and love and laughter, for now and ever after. A girl, a boy, a kiss, no greater joy than this. Merrily we live, da 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 Through a valley or up and down an alley, we never fret or fuss. It's all the same. It's all the same to us. Merrily we live. Da 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 da
a sunny May day, a bright and gay day, how well we know. Barnum never in his heyday put on a finer show. Isn't this a sweet dream, I knock you off your feet, dream, and just between us two. There's no record of how the film's title was chosen. No one says the phrase Merrily We Live in the movie, and the script is not based on any previous work with that title. Executives at Hal Roach Studios were batting around several ideas for the title, and likely came up with the final name after composer Phil Cherick and lyricist Arthur Quinzer submitted the song to director Norman MacLeod. This is Phil Cherick's first and only Oscar nomination, and his work with Quinzer on Merrily We Live and the Laurel and Hardy comedy Swiss Miss were the only major Hollywood projects that feature his talent as a composer. Cherick spent pretty much his entire music career on Broadway writing music for such shows as Sweet and Low, Follow the Girls, and Catch a Star. None of them really made much of an impact or a profit, but Cherick worked almost steadily until his death in 1960. If you've been paying attention, you'll know that Merrily We Live is the second Oscar nomination of the year for Arthur Quinzer, as he took advantage of the relaxed nomination rules that now allow songwriters to earn more than one nomination in the same year. Though his work on writing the title song for The Cowboy and the Lady got very little screen time, his lyrics for Merrily We Live are heard in full, and it tops off Quinzer's most successful year as a lyricist. He would work on other songs in Hollywood for the next few years, unfortunately getting no screen credit for any of them as a lot of second-tier songwriters experienced in that era. One songwriter who was not dwelling in obscurity in 1938 was Oscar Hammerstein II, who helped craft the massive Broadway musical hit Showboat in 1927 with composer Jerome Kern. Hammerstein had been spending lots of time on Broadway working on shows that weren't as popular as Showboat, but kept the collaboration with Kern very strong. Hammerstein was quite popular in Hollywood during his Broadway output, as many studios were eager to bring his musicals to the screen. Hammerstein was directly connected to two films as a screenwriter, Children of Dreams in 1931 with composer Sigmund Romberg, and High, Wide, and Handsome in 1937 with Hammerstein's pal Jerome Kern working on the songs with him. In 1937, Hammerstein started his partnership with composer Ben Oakland on the film I'll Take Romance, writing that film's title song. Oakland toiled on Broadway and in Hollywood for about 20 years, but never got an ounce of the recognition that Hammerstein received. At least not until he picked up this Oscar nomination. To make matters worse, Oakland was never inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but is listed as a notable songwriter. While Kern and Hammerstein were working on their final Broadway musical, Very Warm in May, in 1938, Hammerstein was asked to come to Hollywood to work again with Oakland on four songs for a 65-minute film called The Lady Objects. One of those songs, A Mist Over the Moon, received an Oscar nomination. Because Hammerstein was immersed in both entertainment worlds, Oakland asked Milton Drake to write some of the other songs for The Lady Objects. The songs that Hammerstein wrote were all performed by the film's male star, Lanny Ross, who plays an architect named Bill, who is married to a lawyer whose star is quickly rising while he remains professionally stagnant. Bill was a member of his university's glee club, which explains why he just starts singing to his wife early in the film. 
But Bill's singing comes into play later when he quits his architect job and earns more money singing at a nightclub where two of his college classmates work. It's at this nightclub where we hear a lush rendition of A Mist Over the Moon, but it's actually the second performance of the song. The first time Bill sings it is at a dinner party where Bill, still working as an architect, is trying to get the business of a potential client. Sitting next to this potential client at the piano, Bill alternates between performing the song and pitching himself as the perfect architect. Sing it some more. Gently rest your head upon my shoulder. The evening grows older. I hear you're building. Did my wife tell you? No, but I'm with Collins and Fairbanks, so I'm on the lookout. And like that aimless bird, our boat is drifting. You're an architect, eh? Uh Uh-huh. We draw some mighty pretty pictures in our office. Mm -hmm. Are singing a song. Life is a dream. I've already given that contract to go off and dustpan. (laughs) Sorry, Bill. Yeah, so am I. A mist is over the moon tonight. So there's not much of the song performed here. Through the lyrics, it's clear that it's a love song, but made comical by the situation at hand. The filmmakers remedy that later in the film when Bill sings at the nightclub after leaving a party his wife is hosting. That version is only 20 seconds longer, but at least we get more of the lyrics. This must have been a treat for Oakland and Hammerstein to write the song since they needed to provide two versions, and they were both rewarded with their first Oscar nominations.
Next up is the song My Own from the movie That Certain Age made by Universal Pictures. It's a comedy drama about a teenage girl who falls in love with a 30-something reporter working at her father's newspaper during a weekend stay at the family's country house. Deanna Durbin plays the young girl named Alice, and Melvin Douglas is the reporter named Vincent. In 1938, it was a little risque to make a movie about a teenager who falls in love with an older man, and an early version of the script had the two of them running off and getting married, but that was scrapped when word got out about the ending. The final film version has Alice getting over her infatuation with Vincent, but not before she spends the entire movie making plans to marry him and take care of him as he travels around the world to write his newspaper articles. The film has four songs in it written by Jimmy McHugh and Harold Adamson, who had started their songwriting partnership in 1935 after McHugh and Dorothy Fields ended their collaboration. McHugh had insisted that his name appear in an Oscar nominee for the song Lovely to Look At in 1935, even though he had no part in writing the song with Fields and Jerome Kern. But McHugh's work is all over that certain age, writing songs that span genres and gives soprano Deanna Durbin four great opportunities to show off her skills in her third film with Universal. The movie has a title song that would seem to be a better choice for an Academy Award nomination, especially since it's performed twice. First, it's performed by an unknown adult chorus over the opening credits, singing about finding romance at that certain age. And then at the end of the film, when the teenage members of the cast sing it to close out the summer talent show. The song that earned the Oscar nomination is my own, though, and it's another in a string of love songs that songwriters believe will earn them the title of Academy Award winner. It's not a foolish gamble to make, though only one of the previous four Oscar-winning songs will be labeled as a love song. It's possible that Universal was gambling on my own because it carried more weight in the film. It's sung by Alice at the height of her infatuation with Vincent, performed at Vincent's birthday-slash-going-away party. At this point, Vincent knows that Alice is in love with him, and watching her sing the song directly to him makes him uncomfortable. It almost makes the audience feel uncomfortable as well to see this child singing about wanting to make this man her own, when this is likely her first experience with love. Every 
Deanna Durbin was 15 years old when that certain age was filmed, and she owns her own very well alongside the 35-year-old Douglas and 16-year-old Jackie Cooper, who had been the youngest Oscar nominee back in 1931. Durbin's work on this film convinced the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to give her a special Juvenile Academy Award for her, quote, significant contribution in bringing to the screen the spirit and personification of youth and for setting a high standard of ability and achievement, end quote. McHugh and Adamson each celebrated their second Academy Award nominations, hopeful that they could earn the attention of voters over the din of a song performed by Louis Armstrong, as well as two songs written by Irving Berlin. Yep, I said two songs written by Irving Berlin. In addition to writing Change Partners and Dance With Me for Fred Astaire, Berlin was very busy bringing the movie Alexander's Ragtime Band to the screen. Executives at 20th Century Fox asked Berlin to write a semi-autobiographical film using many of the popular songs he had written in the past two decades. Berlin agreed, but studio head Daryl Zanuck was not happy with what Berlin submitted with Richard Sherman. So Berlin agreed to step aside to let more experienced screenwriters handle the script, which never became the sprawling epic that Zanuck wanted, but still had Berlin's stamp on it. Tyrone Power plays a watered-down version of Irving Berlin as a violin player who changes his name from Roger to Alexander when he becomes famous. His love interest is Alice Faye as Stella Kirby, a singer who wants nothing more than to be a star on Broadway. No fewer than 20 songs written by Berlin run through the 105-minute film. Some previous hits, such as the title song which had been written in 1911, and Blue Skies, which Al Jolson sang in 1927 to usher in talking pictures. But there were two new songs, and one of them ended up as an Academy Award nominee. Now it can be told. Don Amici, who played Alexander's friend and fellow band member Charlie, introduces the song, which his character wrote for Stella. Charlie doesn't say it outright, but it's clear he wrote it to also express his love for Stella. Accompanied only by piano, the song takes on a very intimate feel, a quiet moment between two people who we previously didn't think would fall in love with each other. What's that? Oh, just a little hit tune I've been working on. You mean you wrote it yourself? Now it can be told, told in all its glory, now that we have met, the world may know the sentimental story, the greatest romance they ever knew is waiting to Every other tale a boy meets girl is just an imitation. The great love story has never been told before. But now... 
how it can be Stella doesn't realize that Charlie is in love with her, so when she performs a song as Alexander conducts with full orchestra, she pours out her heart with the vocals, this time to Alexander. The song is stronger here, which is probably why Alexander immediately understands that Stella is not just singing the song, but professing her love to him. Alexander's ragtime band turned out to be a big hit for 20th Century Fox, but Irving Berlin was not happy with the finished product. He did not like the way Alfred Newman took his original compositions and added more lush orchestrations, particularly in Blue Skies. He desperately wanted to impress Ethel Merman as a way to convince her to be a part of some upcoming Broadway shows he was working on, but he thought she was not given a chance to shine when she sang Heat Wave and A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. Merman didn't seem to think their relationship was doomed. She starred in the Broadway smash Annie Get Your Gun in 1946 with popular songs written by Irving Berlin. And Alfred Newman's work on adapting Irving Berlin's music for the screen must have impressed those who voted for the Academy Award for Best Score, giving Newman the first of what will be nine Oscars for music. And the writer's branch of the Academy recognized Berlin's contribution to fashioning the eventual script of the film, giving him an Oscar nomination for Original Story. That gave Berlin three nominations in two categories in one year. Our tenth and final nominated song of 1938 is Thanks for the Memory, from the comedy film The Big Broadcast of 1938. 
Through the years, the song's title has been named as Thanks for the Memories, which is understandable given the context of the song. This was the fourth and final film in the big broadcast series that Paramount had been making since 1932. The film takes place mostly on board the SS Gigantic, an ocean liner racing across the Atlantic Ocean from New York to France against the SS Colossal. The film is essentially nothing more than a series of comedic episodes involving W.C. Fields as the inept owner of the Gigantic and his bumbling daughter played by Martha Ray. And there's also the ex-wives of the nightly radio broadcast MC, played by Bob Hope in his film debut. Before the ship takes off, we see Hope's character Buzz Fielding in jail for not paying alimony to his three ex-wives. He gets out of jail in time to board the ship, with two of them along for the ride. One of them is Cleo, played by Shirley Ross, and she still pines for Buzz, and they occasionally run into each other on the ship as their love for each other clearly begins to return. Thanks for the memory, as well as five other songs in the film, were written by Ralph Ranger and Leo Robin, the duo behind the non-nominated songs from last year's Waikiki Wedding, and the songwriters behind all four big broadcast films. This time around, they didn't have the film star shoving in a song from someone else and diluting their work. All of the songs heard in the big broadcast of 1938, with the exception of a song from one of Richard Wagner's ring operas, belonged to Ranger and Robin. Almost all of the songs required big and bold orchestrations to be performed on a large stage, but Thanks for the Memory stands out from the others because it is the exact opposite of that. It's a conversation put to music. And the idea of Ranger and Robin writing a song celebrating divorce was a bit unusual in 1938. Sitting at a bar drowning their sorrows, Buzz and Cleo think back on their marriage and begin singing about all the good and bad things they experienced together. They sing thanks for the memory, then run through a list of two or three funny incidents while traveling abroad, or tender domestic moments like Cleo leaving her stockings in the sink. The musical response is either how lovely it was or thank you so much. The music isn't the highlight of the song, and Ranger is smart to let Robin's lyric allow the audience to soak in the memories with Buzz and Cleo. The song takes on a very spontaneous feel, especially in the moments where the two don't pick up the lyric at the right time, or decide to speak the lyrics instead of sing them. Once, Bob Hope doesn't say the word thanks, picking up the song at For the Memory, and Shirley Ross skips the title together as she gets emotional. Thanks for the memory. Of rainy afternoons, swingy Harlem tunes, motor trips and burning lips and burning toast and prunes. How lovely it was. Thanks for the memory of candlelight and wine, castles on the Rhine, the Parthenon, and moments on the Hudson River line. How lovely it was. Many's the time that we feasted. And many's the time that we fasted. Oh, well, it was swell while it lasted. We did have fun and no harm done. So thanks for the memory of crap games on the floor. Nights in Singapore, you might have been a headache 
but you never were a boy. I thank you so much. Thanks for the memory of China's funny walls, transatlantic calls. That weekend at Niagara when we hardly saw the falls. How lovely that was. Thank you. Thanks for the memory of lunch from 12 to 4, sunburn at the show, that pair of gay pajamas that you bought and never wore. Say, by the way, what did happen to those pajamas? Huh? Letters with sweet little secrets that couldn't be put in a day wire. Too bad it all had to go haywire. That's life, I guess. I love your dress. Do you? It's pretty. Thanks for the memory of faults that you forgave. Rainbows on a way. And stockings in the basin when a fellow needs a shave. I thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the memory of gardens at Versailles. And beef and kidney pie. The night you worked and then came home with lipstick on your tie. <laughs> How lovely that was. Huh? For the memory of lingerie with lace. Yes, and pills nearby the case. <laughs> and how I jumped the day you trumped my one and only ace. How lo lovely that was. We said goodbye with a highball. And I got as high as a steeple. Did you? But we were intelligent people. No tears, no fuss. Hooray for us. Strictly entrepreneur. Darling, how are you? How are all those little dreams that never did come true? Awfully glad I met you. Cheerio, toodaloo. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Buzz. <laughs> Darling, I know. I know, dear. When Paramount voted to submit Thanks for the Memory as its nominee for Best Song, it began to highlight how Hollywood was starting to realize that the best movie songs were not coming from broad performances that won awards for The Continental and The Lullaby of Broadway, but were part of the story and helped characters say what they couldn't do under normal circumstances. That was also true for the nomination choices from Carefree and Alexander's Ragtime Band. Audiences still went mad for the big splashy dance performances on screen, but Broadway was still the best place to see that, and movies started to tone it down for more realism. That could explain why Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers put an end to their screen partnership the following year, and why the big broadcast movies were suddenly out of style. Listing some of the songs that failed to earn an Oscar nomination is a little different now that each studio is guaranteed one nomination. 
But there is one song that highlights how the rule change might have negatively affected its chances for a nomination. Before his death in 1937, George Gerwin wrote songs for the Goldwyn Follies with his brother Ira, a financial flop in 1938 for Samuel Goldwyn Productions. That studio had submitted the song The Cowboy and the Lady from the film of the same name, which also didn't make a lot of money. As you might remember, its score was written by music department head Alfred Newman, and the song's music was composed by Alfred's brother Lionel. It is possible that some nepotism and influence on Alfred Newman's part played a role in getting the Cowboy and the Lady picked as the Academy Award nominee for Samuel Goldwyn Productions over the Gershwin classic Our Love is Here to Stay from Goldwyn Follies. With Ira as the only living Gershwin, he likely couldn't lobby for his song as hard as the music department had and his brother could. The more I read the papers, the less I comprehend the world and all its papers and how it all will end. Nothing seems to be lasting, but that isn't our affair. We've got something permanent, I mean in the way. Very clear, our love is here to stay, not for a year, but ever and a day. The radio and the telephone and the movies that we know may just be passing fancies and in time may go. I didn't invite you here to make love to you, just to get a little better acquainted, so sometime when I... My dear, you're not listening to me. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was listening to the song. Like his voice? He sings wonderfully. They're only made of clay, but our love is here. So, 10 songs nominated for the Oscar in 1938, and I'm sure you don't remember them all, so here it is again. Always and Always, The Cowboy and the Lady, Change Partners and Dance with Me, Jeepers Creepers, Dust, A Mist Over the Moon, Merrily We Live, My Own, Now It Can Be Told, and Thanks for the Memory. 16 songwriters were hoping to hear their names called. Harry Warren was the only one who knew what it was like to hear his name called at the Academy Awards banquet, but the odds of him winning again were low. Two songs by Irving Berlin were in the running, one of which appeared in Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was nominated for Best Picture. But it was Ralph Ranger and Leo Robin who received the gold plaques for writing what the voters believed was the best film song of the year, Thanks for the Memory. Jerome Kern was on hand to present the award to Ralph Ranger and Leo Robin, welcoming the two to the growing club of Academy Award-winning songwriters. Also in attendance at the Oscar ceremony on February 23, 1939, was Bob Hope, making his first appearance at an Academy Award ceremony. The orchestra played the instrumental version of his now Oscar-winning song as he walked onto the stage, ready with a few quips that would be his staple once he became host of the ceremony the next year. And what a year 1938 turned out to be. 
Hollywood songwriters gave us an eclectic mix of love songs, comedy numbers, and toe-tappers that did what they were put in the film to do, heighten the emotion of the scene and give us a reason to remember it long after the film ended. That will be the goal of Hollywood's movie songs moving forward, especially as the importance of record sales began to take hold. So thanks for singing along with me on this episode. We'll talk about the nominated songs from 1939 on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Remember that you can reach out to me by email at jeffswim at aol.com with any questions or comments you have about the show. So long for now. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.